uh, working our way through the book of James over the last few weeks and as you know we're up to James chapter 4. How do you deal with conflict? If you're anything like me, not very well. Just ask my family. In fact, the state of the world and sometimes sadly the state of the church testifies to the fact that human beings in general are bad at dealing with differences and dealing with conflicts between one another. Now the worldly legalistic approach to dealing with conflict is to develop techniques and strategies uh, which can often be helpful but they don't deal with the root of the problem which is the state of our hearts which we see in our passage this morning is the reason behind our conflicts, the passions that war within us or the pleasures that war within us. We fight with one another because we're still fighting the sin within us. There's a a battle going on within us which spills out and becomes a battle with those around us. And then we're told in verse 2 that the, the heart of that sinful desire is covetousness. You desire, you do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covetousness comes from a heart that doesn't know contentment in God. It presupposes that God's stingy, that God doesn't give me everything that I really need or that he shows favouritism. He gives to other people things that I deserve myself or I think I deserve. Out of the Ten Commandments, the first nine are to be obeyed externally by actions and by words. But the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, is one that's obeyed internally through what we set our affections on, our hearts on. So in that sense, covetousness is what lays the groundwork for every other sin. Every sin starts with the desires of the heart. See how this was what happened in Eden. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So, sin began with the woman looking at the tree allowing it to captivate her senses in that it was able to satisfy her physically, it was good for food, emotionally it was a delight to the eyes and intellectually it was desired to make one wise. So she concluded that God wasn't justified in withholding this thing from her which meant she was justified in disobeying his command and putting her desire into action and taking and eating the fruit. And of course, her husband was 
there with her, going along with the whole thing. Remember how we saw that dynamic described in James chapter 1. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. All sin starts in the heart, which is why applying the law will never cure sin because all the law does is uh, enforce and uh, bring about an external change of behaviour. It's only, as we'll see in a moment, God's grace that can reach into the heart and actually transform our desires. So see the contrast then between covetous desires and the act of asking. James says you do not have because you do not ask. Now Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The coveting leads to us making demands of God and of one another. Because we think whatever it is we desire is our right, something we deserve and others are wrong in withholding it from us. Asking, on the other hand, requires us to submit to the other person, to look not to our right to have that thing but to their prerogative to be generous and to give. Even knowing that our Heavenly Father is generous and that he loves to give good gifts to his children doesn't exempt us from coming with this attitude of asking, not presuming for a moment that we're wise enough in ourselves to know exactly the right thing to expect him to give us. You may sometimes hear people talking about prayer using the language of claiming or declaring, decreeing or even believing for something. That comes from a a theology that claims to have faith-filled confidence in whatever God has told us is ours in Christ. So we're simply speaking words of truth that have power to somehow bring about the thing that we are saying. But the Bible nowhere speaks of prayer in that way. It always uses the language of humble asking because grace tells us that everything we receive from the Father is always a gift. It's never earned, it's never deserved, it's always his generosity flowing to us. Now there are things we know are guaranteed that if we ask, we'll receive them. We saw that in 1.5. 
that the prayer for wisdom is one that God will always answer when asked in true faith. In fact, anything we read in the scripture that is given in the form of a promise from God to give his children can be asked for with that confidence. However, by asking instead of claiming or decreeing, we're acknowledging three things. Firstly, I'm acknowledging that I, I can never know beyond doubt that the thing I'm asking for, while it may be a good thing that the Father has promised to give, is actually the thing that I need right here, right now. The Father knows what I need even before I come and ask. And so I need to submit my ideas about what's best for me now to the Father in the mystery of his good and sovereign will that he knows what's best. Asking means bringing our requests to God while also saying, if you choose in your goodness not to give me the thing that I want, I'm still willing to find my contentment in you, not in the things that you can give me. Secondly, by asking, I'm acknowledging that I can't stipulate the means by which the Father will give me the good things I'm asking for. So we might have in our mind the quickest, most efficient way for him to do something for us, but he very rarely takes the pathway that we want him to do, that we think is the way to do it. For example, how often do you ask God for times of testing? But we were told, weren't we, in chapter 1, that it's through the testing of our faith that God produces steadfastness. And through steadfastness, he'll bring us to completion. John Newton, uh, we're hearing a bit from him this morning, wrote this hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favoured hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will you pursue your worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. So asking means saying I'm willing to accept 
whatever way the Father chooses to answer my prayer, even if I don't like the way he does it. Thirdly, asking is acknowledging that I can never trust my own motives to be pure when I ask. As verse 3 says, there it is, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Even my best, my most godly intentions will always be tainted some way, to some degree, by my selfish, sinful desires. I may say the words that I'm asking this, Lord, so that you'll be glorified above all things, but I'll still be thinking in some sneaky deceptiveness of my heart that saying these words will somehow twist God's arm and make him more inclined to give me what I want. God's law has this way of backing us into a corner. It tells us that we harm one another because we don't have what we desire, that we don't have because we don't ask, and that even when we do ask, we don't do it rightly because our motives will always be imperfect. God's law gives us nine commandments that tell us how to love God and how to love our neighbour and then it undercuts our capacity to obey them with a tenth commandment that exposes this deceitfulness of our own hearts. 1 Timothy 1.9 says, The law is not laid down for the just but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and he goes on with a list there. If, as we've been looking at James in the last few weeks, you've had that sense of conviction or discomfort at these strong words that James is using, and there's more to come in chapter 5, that's because what James is doing is he's bringing the law to bear on our hearts. Not so that we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, yes, I'm doing all that, but so that we'll come to the same conclusion of verse 4. That as far as our natural, sinful humanity goes, and unless God intervenes by his grace, then we're adulterers, we're friends of the world, and we're enemies of God. That's the human predicament. The most common image used through the Bible to describe sin is this idea of adultery. Through covenant bond, Israel entered into a marriage relationship with the Lord as her husband. He'd sworn his faithfulness to to them. They in turn had promised their faithfulness to him to obey all his commands, to worship him alone as the only true God. So for them to turn aside, as they frequently did, and to worship other gods was an act of adultery. The image of Israel in the Old Testament is of her wearing, like I don't know if you've ever read the Scarlet Letter, the the woman in 
17th century New England in America who has a child um, and she's not willing to disclose who the father of her child is and so she's forced to walk around with a red A on her dress to mark herself out as an adulteress so that she lived in shame and condemnation. But the image of Israel in the Old Testament is wearing this label adulteress brazenly and proudly, without shame, without remorse. They sinned with a high hand. They boasted of their friendship with the world. And so the Lord had to break them, had to humble them through judgments and through exile, not to destroy them, not to uh, divorce them, but to make them return from their adultery and come back to him. So verse 4 is the bad news of the judgement that we deserve which has been revealed to us by God's law. But the good news comes in verse 5. Now James here appears to be quoting a scripture but we can't find it anywhere in the Old Testament or outside the Old Testament for that matter. But it's a little bit misleading the way that the translators have put this phrase, uh, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, in inverted commas, because in the original Greek uh, there's no punctuation. You can only work out by context when it's actually a, a quote. So James here isn't actually quoting a specific verse from the Old Testament. What he's doing is he's giving a one sentence summary of God's dealing with his people through the whole Old Testament. That, in a sense, is a one-sentence summary of Genesis to Malachi. Overarching this dismal story of human adultery is this grand story of God, the jealous husband, who, despite the fact that his betrothed bride constantly is unfaithful to him, he remains fiercely faithful to his vow and he will do all that's necessary to redeem her, even to the point of giving his own son to bear her sin at the cross. So that's what makes then verse 6 so magnificent. He gives more grace. Now the word here for more is the word mega. We use the word mega as a prefix to mean a million, as in megalitres, the word a lot of people are hearing at the moment when they're thinking about the rivers in Australia. But the word means great to the maximum degree. Think of the highest number you can think of, that's mega, the largest size that you can imagine. So in response to our sinfulness and our unfaithfulness and our wrong desires, God gives mega grace. No matter how far we fall, no matter how heinous our sin, no matter how far our hearts drift from pure devotion to him, 
the grace of God in Jesus Christ will always be greater and stronger and more able to redeem and restore. To quote John Newton again, he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. So uh, James and John Newton are, are really reflecting the words of Romans 5 here. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sin was so great that it required the wrath of a holy, righteous God to be poured out upon us. The depths of our evil demands the depths of hell itself to restore the, the balance of God's justice. But the love and grace of God is so much greater that even the most horrific evil he was willing to take onto himself and to bear it down into death, in weakness and in humility, plumbing the depths of our hell in order to raise us up and to bring us to the Father. So how are we to respond then to this mega grace? Well, in repentance and faith. Coming to God our Father in humility, in sorrow, in mourning over our sin, not just at the point of our conversion, but on a daily basis. Acknowledging that if it weren't for his grace that sustains us daily, if not for his mercies that are new every morning, we'd be lost. Someone else, a theologian, once said, if salvation could be lost, I would have lost it a long time ago. But it can't be lost, not because there's some kind of mechanical thing that just makes it happen, but because God in his grace holds me firm day by day. So we come to him in humility, in repentance and faith, but we're also called to show fruit in keeping with repentance. A humility in response to this mega grace of God should flow out into our lives and into our relationships. And the rest of the letter of James speaks about this fruit and we see two examples given at the end of chapter 4. Firstly, the way that we speak with one another in the church. That's a recurring theme, isn't it, in James. It seems that everything comes down to what's going in our hearts and how that comes out of our mouths and how we speak. The humility of living by grace means we never set ourselves up as an administrator of the law over someone else. That's what it means to say that we judge the law. We put ourselves in the position of God as if we are the lawgiver. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't speak to our brother or sister in private when they sin against us. Jesus tells us to do that in Matthew 18. He's talking about using the law to direct and to control others in a self-righteous way, 
presuming to be able to judge because we think we're without fault. So this mega grace that we've received from the Father means in turn showing mega grace to one another, trusting that each of us is first of all accountable to God for the way we live. Secondly, the way that we think and plan our lives in this world, verses 13 to 17. Planning for the future isn't wrong. In fact, godly wisdom, the, the, the wisdom books in the scriptures tell us it's actually a good thing to do, to plan ahead. It's a wise thing. It's a good thing to be a steward of the gifts that God has given us. But mega grace should transform our motives and our methods as we do that. Because life is no longer about building our own kingdoms, about securing our future, guaranteeing our security. We've seen that such pursuit is foolishness because in the grand scheme of things, a few short years in this life, we're told are like a mist that you see on a cold day as you breathe out and within a second it's vanished. That's the word that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses when he says all is meaningless. The Hebrew word there is breath that blows out and then it's gone. In a hundred years, most of us sitting here will probably be forgotten by those still living in this world. What should be more important to us then is knowing that we will never be forgotten by God. Like the man in Jesus' parable, he planned to build himself bigger barns to store his grain and his goods, not realising that that very night his soul would be required of him. We're called in this life then to be rich towards God, regardless of whether our earthly treasure is large or small. What does it mean to be rich towards God? By coming to him in humility and asking and receiving from him, receiving from his generosity with gratefulness, the the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. It's It's only when we will know that we are rich in him will we then be able to walk in confidence and humility before his face and before one another. 